Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Michael Calori. I'm an editor at Wired, and you are listening to The Gadget Lab, the podcast where we talk about the latest gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about and how they impact our lives. I am joined this week by my co-host, Wired Senior Associate Editor, Ariel Pardes. Hello. Lauren Good is out this week reporting a story, but she'll be joining us virtually via the miracle of technology in just a few minutes. That's right. While Lauren was in our New York office earlier this week, she sat down with Jason Del Rey, the senior correspondent at Recode, who covers the e-commerce industry, and in particular, Amazon. Jason has just launched a new podcast called Land of the Giants. Every season will examine one of the tech behemoths that dominates our lives online, Apple, Google, Facebook, Netflix. The first season of the podcast is all about Amazon tracking the company's ascent through a series of interviews with former employees. It's very good. Episode three just dropped this week. I just got caught up this morning. It's a pretty awesome show. I'm really happy that we have Jason on the show. But before we jump to Lauren and Jason talking about Amazon, let's do a quick recap of the news. Ariel, what's happening? Okay, I have a riddle for you. What lives on your iPhone but can't be accessed through the App Store, has no numbers but carries a balance, and helps Tim Cook sleep well at night? Hmm. It's the Apple card. (laughs) Uh, That's right. Apple has a new credit card. In case you forgot about this, Apple first announced it back in March. And on Tuesday, Apple made it available to a select group of iPhone users. The rest of us will be able to apply for it later this month. 
Now, what you ask is so special about the Apple Card. Well, it's a credit card, one made of titanium, but everything about it is designed to function on your iPhone. So you apply for the card on your phone, the card itself lives in the wallet app, and you pay for things by tapping your phone to a payment terminal the same way you'd use Apple Pay. And actually, that the Apple Card is not very different from Apple Pay, except for that you get this nice little interface that categorizes your spending by color, and you get some cash back on your purchases. So there's 2% cash back when you use Apple Pay, 1% when you use the card, and 3% when you buy Apple products. Now, Apple has a lot of claims about what it's doing differently here, like there are no late fees and you get your cash back on a daily basis, but in terms of interest rates and rewards, it's actually not super different from other credit cards. There's been a lot of reporting this week about how this stacks up with other high cashback credit cards and, you know, like Apple Card is probably not the best thing to get unless you're an Apple super fan. But what is different and cool is the idea of reaching for your iPhone rather than reaching for your wallet when you go to pay for something. And Apple has a huge stake in that. This isn't the only way that it's trying to replace your wallet. It's also working on things like digital tickets, digital ID cards, digital metro passes, and getting people to use a credit card that lives on their screen rather than in their wallet is is a big part of this master plan. Yeah, I noticed that this week um, they also did a big advertising campaign in the New York City subway uh, right. showing people how to tap to get through the fare gates just using their phone. And they launched um, Wallet, like Apple Wallet, or is it just called Wallet, mm-hmm. um, something like six years ago, mm-hmm. seven 2012, years ago? 2012, I think. Yeah, and ever since then, it's like more and more things are creeping in there, which I think is really interesting. I use an Android phone, um, a Pixel 3, so I'm firmly in Google's operating system world. And there's the Google Wallet, which is pretty good. You can put stuff in there like credit cards. You can put in um, like a Walgreens card, but there's no way to pay to get on the bus. Mm. Uh, There's no way to tap to get access to uh, a location like a key card for your your office or something like that. That's definitely where these companies are going. Mm -hmm. So um, the Apple Card is going to get more people on board with that vision of the future, I think. Absolutely. And the more people who are on board with that vision of the future, the more people who buy iPhones, right? Yeah. Like this is all part of Apple's genius plan to get you to buy their hardware because you love their services so much. And if yeah. you if you can use an iPhone but not an Android phone to um, pay to get on the Metro, to pay for things at the coffee shop, to get into sports events, to get into your student dorm, um, then you're more likely to, to you know, front the money to buy an iPhone. You're an iPhone user. Are you going to get an Apple card? I don't think so. Um, I have, yeah, I have no real interest. in. (laughs) I have credit cards that give me more than 2% cash back already. So I just don't know really what the incentive would be for me. Although I am so driven by aesthetics and the the interface they've built that categorizes your spending is truly beautiful. And they have this lovely design feature where you open the Apple card in Apple Wallet and it starts off totally white. And then as you spend, the categories that you spend on have different colors. So like one, you know, like shopping is like one color and then like travel is another color and like restaurants is another color. And depending on how much you spend on those various categories, the digital card has this like sort of lava lamp like mesh of colors. And so if you spend a lot in one like category, it becomes like more orange. And if you spend more in one category, it's more pink. Gosh, it's beautiful. That's great. I can't wait for Google to copy it. (laughs) 
So moving on, on Wednesday, Samsung unveiled the newest version of its Galaxy Note smartphone. The Note is the largest phone that Samsung makes. You'll remember that for years we joked about the Galaxy Note's giant screen and called it a phablet not a term of endearment. Uh, but then the whole industry started making huge phones, so now I guess the joke is on us. Well, the Note is back, and Samsung has done something kind of weird and daring. There are two sizes of the Note now. There is the big Note that we all know and love, and it has a plus-size screen that measures 6.8 inches on the diagonal. What? Yeah, right? Huge. And then there's the smaller, more sensible version of the Note with a 6.3-inch screen. The new smaller Note is almost exactly the same size as the Galaxy S10 that Samsung released this spring. But the Note is different, of course, because it comes with a stylus. Both sizes of the Note, the big one and the small one, have Samsung's S Pen in the box. Um, Both of these Notes are also very expensive, as flagship smartphones are these days. The smaller Note costs $950, while the larger Galaxy Note 10 Plus, yes, the bigger version, gets a plus after the name now, starts at $1,100. They're both available this month. Ariel, what are your thoughts on giant phones? I don't like a giant phone. I am personally very surprised that the smartphone industry has headed in this direction of producing bigger and bigger phones. Um, I'm a tiny phone person. (laughs) (laughs) I can't, I have the, uh, the iPhone seven plus right now and Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm due for an upgrade. And the thing that I'm most excited about is, is getting something that's smaller because my phone doesn't fit in my pocket. It doesn't fit in my hand. It doesn't fit on the side of my face when I'm making a phone call. Um, doesn't fit in a lot of like tiny women's purses. So, um, personally I'm, I'm not interested in a giant phone however i do understand that as our sort of screens are becoming more and more a part of our lives like it does make sense to have a giant phone if that's the thing that you're also using to like watch tv on the train and do a little bit of work when you're out of the office and see your instagram pictures in super high crisp definition like i don't know uh the more that these phones become our central computers i totally get the impulse to, to have a bigger screen. The thing that sets this device apart, or I should say these devices apart from the rest of the phone world, um, is the stylus, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. S Pen. Yeah, can you do anything cool with this version of the S Pen? Yeah, it has gestures built in. So you can like wave it around. And the old one, I remember they first started making the S Pen have more than just writing functionality where you could use it to take a picture. Like you could tap on the end that's of it right. and it would take a picture. Selfie pen. Yeah, so they're still, they're doing, yeah, that's what the S stands for. <laughs> <laughs> so they're doing more um, along those lines with, with gestures now. And of course we saw, you know, the Pixel phone is going to have gestures. So I think it's sort of signaling that gestures are going to be more a part of the smartphone smartphone experience going forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, using a pen on a phone, is that something that a lot of people do? Probably not. In the wild, I've never seen it. I've never seen it either. Probably much bigger in Asia than it is here, just yeah. because of the style of writing. Uh, it's probably easier to scribble than it is to type. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But remains to be seen whether or not the pen is the thing that's going to make people choose this over the Galaxy S10, which is exactly the same size. All right. Well, I think it's time to go to Lauren Good in conversation with journalist Jason Del Rey and hear them talk about Amazon. So let's take a quick break and then come back with the interview. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works 
and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Jason Del Rey is a senior correspondent at Recode, who has covered Amazon and other retailers, both large and small, for the past six years. And now he's the host of Land of the Giants, a new narrative podcast series about the biggest tech companies of our time. The first season is called The Rise of Amazon. And as you might expect, it's all about Amazon and the future of Jeff Bezos's company. Jason is also my former colleague. In fact, I think I took your photo for your work ID when you started Whoa. at Recode in 2013, if I remember correctly. Um, it wasn't even Recode back then. It was still it was all, all things, things D. D. Um, and I remember you saying, uh, I probably look really tired because my wife and I just had a baby. This is all correct. And <laughs> I'm like the nightmare is resurfacing in my head. Yes. <laughs> Which ties into the first episode of your podcast because you personally started to notice some interesting trends around your own Amazon usage after you had your first child. The first episode, talk about that. Sure. So um, we started the series with an episode all about Amazon Prime because, um, in my opinion, it is sort of the key to Amazon's retail domination. And Amazon's retail domination is the key to everything else it's doing today. Um, and part of the episode is the origin story of Amazon Prime told in the words of executives and uh, managers who built it. Part of it's about the consumer psychology behind Prime, how it locks us in so effectively and comes into our lives in times when we most need sort of something easy and convenient because we have a lot going on. And for me, um, right after my first child was born, my son was when we signed up for Amazon Prime. And, you know, each year after that, we ju it just became more and more central to our everyday life, which kind of sounds sad in some ways, but it's just, I'm sure there's a lot of people that can relate now. I mean, there's north of 100 million Prime members globally. And um, anyway, yeah, so it um, found a way into our life when we needed some, <laughs> some stability um, and we're not going out of the house much. Maybe it would be useful to back up and ask you first why you decided it was at this moment in time you wanted to make a narrative podcast about Amazon. Um. With Amazon, I think it's a combination of Alexa increasingly was in, seemed like everyone's homes, you know, everyone everyone getting grandma and Alexa dot um, for Christmas or another holiday around that time. And um, just so pervasive and no one had really done anything that we had known of in audio form. One of the reasons why we thought audio would be a great medium um, f to explore Amazon was Maybe like many tech executives, executives at Amazon speak in sort of 
different type of language, and it's a optimistic language about the future of technology. It um, some some would say sometimes it's jargony, um, but it's this at Amazon. It's this idea of customer obsession, customer delight, frictionless, seamless, um, and those words are all fine, but um, on paper they just kind of can lose all meaning. And so what I've tried to do is be the translator as we talk to some of these Amazon executives throughout these episodes and explain what I think they really mean um, and how they think. And uh, we just felt like audio would be a great medium for that. So they're not not explicitly saying world domination, but you're you're looking, you're basically looking to see if that's, that's the goal. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the second episode of the series, which is about the smart home and Alexa, I talked to the vice president of smart home at Amazon and he's essentially saying we're not, we're not a retailer, right? You know, we're not a, just a media company. We're not just a cloud provider. Like we solve problems for customers and we solve hard problems for customers. And if we think there's an area where there are our, our customers' lives could be made simpler, better, like we're going to try to invent something. He talks a lot about invention. Um, and so I just came away from the series. I mean, I knew this, but really coming away from the series feeling like there is no industry that's safe. And um, it's like everything they say is world domination without saying world domination. Um, and their optimism can lead to blind spots, you know, because they so believe they're doing everything for good. And I believe they think that and try that. But um, they're just moving in so many directions at the same time that that one of, one of the fears is they create blind spots. So the first episode is about Amazon Prime, which is inarguably one of the most important parts of Amazon's business. And one of the things that struck me about the Prime episode is you describe the scene with the help of a former uh, Amazon employee, Vijay Ravindran, of Bezos basically pitching the idea of Prime and assembling a team of people on his houseboat on a Saturday morning to yeah. say, this is the direction we're going in. And it's during the holiday season, and the team is already incredibly stressed out, and, yes. and like the website is like hashtag failing. Yeah. And Bezos is like, we're going to do this thing. But what struck me about this story is it wasn't just about like customer obsession and customer service. And we need to get things to people in two days or less because we're still we're still like competing with brick and mortar experiences. But even then, it seemed like he had this idea around how we lock people in. The pricing was even its own strategy because you need to make it enough so that people think about it. It can't be some nominal fee that they sign up for once a month and they forget about it. Right. And that to me is like so emblematic of this, of of Amazon thinking even years ago about how we get people sucked in and we keep them. Yeah. So I'll I'll start with the pricing. Um, So on one hand, you know, it was very much instinct. There were, you know, I've been told there were, you know, there were people that did some modeling, but it was not something where you had a room full of MBAs for like a year trying to figure out the perfect price. It was this idea that. You know, I think they knew they wanted it to be between like fifty and a hundred dollars, because that just that felt like not so much that it's going to rule out the vast majority of people, but enough that whether you recognize that you think about the pricing or not, that somewhere in your brain you're thinking, "I need to get my money's worth for this," and so you know it sort of triggers something in you where Amazon now becomes 
the first place you go because you've thought to yourself, I already made this, I don't know, investment. And so they decided on $79 a year. Which was also uh, a prime number. Which was also, as I think in episode, say happily for many of the nerds inside Amazon, which they, they describe themselves as um, uh, a prime number. Um, and it stayed, it stayed at 79 for many, many years, went up to 99, now it's $119. And I don't know about for you, but for my family with um, two kids now and a lot of shopping online, it still feels like a no-brainer. And, and, and then there was this idea from, from that meeting in uh, Jeff Bezos' boathouse on a Saturday morning <laughs> during the holiday season, crazy, um, even from that time of creating a moat um, around Amazon's best customers. Um, to I, I like to think of it both keeping other retailers out and keeping <laughs> these best customers locked in. Um, and simultaneously with that, you know, Amazon started adding more and more product categories that would make it so you could you could go back there on a daily or weekly basis and find things that you needed, consumable items, you know, not one-off purchases um, like a book or DVD. Um, so all those things together, and, and there were many reasons after that that we sort of explain in the in the episode why. Prime became what it is today. You know, adding video was a key moment mm-hmm. um, for a, a separate written oral history I did on Amazon Prime. A video executive told me we, we wanted to compete with Netflix and we were struggling not being able to get good content with how much money we were willing to spend. And Bezos said, if the customers are getting it for free with Prime, like how much could they really complain? And so video, and long story short, video was a big moment. Um, it's easy to think now that Prime would have been an overnight success, but it took it was like very slow and steady for many, many years. Why has no other retailer been able to be as successful at something like Prime as Amazon is? Um, well, a huge key to Prime, maybe obviously, is the speed. A key, huge key to the speed um, was Amazon over time be able to lower the costs on delivering that speed of delivery. And behind that, was a warehouse network that is now more than 100 large fulfillment centers, as they call it, just in the U.S. alone. Amazon started that journey in um, 97, 98, or 96. Um, Other retailers, their warehouses were made for shipping to physical retail. That's a totally different type of, they call them distribution centers. That's shipping pallets of goods into a retail store, not placing order by order. And so so they got a huge, huge head start. I think even today, I wrote a recent story about Walmart internal tension there, trying to figure out how best to compete with Amazon. Walmart has at most 20 e-commerce fulfillment centers. Walmart. Amazon has five times that, more than five times that in the U.S. And so the warehouse network, I, I think that's one of one of the huge keys, and it's just super hard to play catch up. So now you're a traditional retailer and you say, okay, two day shipping is now kind of table stakes. Um, want to beat Amazon. <laughs> I need one day, same day. And, and if you don't have warehouses all over, the economics just are awful. So Amazon has a huge leg up. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask Jason all about Alexa. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. 
Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as a specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. So the second episode of Land of the Giants is all about Amazon's Alexa and how our homes are essentially becoming Amazon platforms. And it really does beg the question who this is most beneficial for. So why is Amazon trying so hard to get inside of our homes? I tried to get to an answer in that episode. Um, from people I talked to in the early day, you know, who are in and around Amazon at the early days of Alexa, um, and no matter what the company says publicly, like the initial idea was was largely around commerce, okay? Feeling that voice commerce would become a thing um, and also um, feeling like, you know, internet internet of things was going to become a thing and like we should be we should be playing there um over time they uh i think have realized wow like beyond commerce there's just like all these devices connected to the internet um if we connect them to alexa we just learn so much more about a person i think we can't even grasp all the things that they can learn about us by knowing um what time of day I ask for, I don't know, the weather. Um, I don't know. So, so Someone had this, you know, great thing about if I, you know, if one week I'm telling Alexa to shut my lights off at 9 p.m., but my normal bedtime is 11 or midnight, am I sick? Am I depressed? Am I? And, and then, you know, in the episode, we hear about one of Amazon's patents where they actually um, one Alexa to be able to know whether you're actually sick by detecting sniffles or hoarseness mm-hmm. or yeah, it sounds um, like there are at least three levels of information that Amazon is getting from you. Which one is the actual query? Correct. The second is the metadata of when these queries are happening and all of the data that's packaged around that. And the third, as the futurist Amy Webb mentions in your episode, it's using machine learning to extract even more. Uh, interesting bits of information about you, like where in the room you're sitting or standing when you make the query or whether, to your point, whether you're sick because your nose is stuffed. Right. And then with that information, I mean, you know, there could be an ad for, you know, something to order within one hour delivery from Amazon to help you feel that there could be a future where Amazon's playing a role in healthcare, which seems more and more likely by the day. And so I asked for an interview, um, with a couple of people from Amazon, I was I ended up with a vice president of the smart home, and I basically said like, "What's in this for you? It's not clear." And so this VP Daniel Roush just opened up the playbook for you, right? He um, world domination. He said Jason, we <laughs> we at our best, we are figuring out hard problems that customers have, and we're inventing on behalf of customers. And so you know, he rattled off some features like. Um, that may sound awesome to some people. It may sound creepy to others. So one of them is called Alexa Hunches. Have you ever, do you know, have you ever I know used? what hunches are. I've never, I don't think I've used them. I've tested a lot of Echoes and I'm sure at some point I was like, oh, I should probably test this. But um, 
the whole idea is that it gets to know you over time and suggests something. Like to your to your earlier example of turning off the lights, it knows that and says, Lauren, would you like to turn off the lights sort of preemptively, right? Is right. That the idea? Yes. Or even, you know, you asked me to turn off the lights. Should I also lock the door? Um, and I don't know. Maybe I'm just like super jaded journalist at this point or like um, – or I have, you know, skepticism just, you know, uh, built into me. But – it freaks me out a little bit, right? This all led me to just ask, you know, Daniel Rausch, whether there are any teams inside of the smart home division of Amazon that sort of listen to skeptics and then like maybe their their main goal is to like work back from those fears and make sure they're building all those safeguards around those fears or evaluating the fears of what could go wrong. And his response was very quick and very straightforward. And it was essentially, no, Jason, like we um, we start from a place of optimism um, and essentially like, yeah, we we hear the skeptics, but like they're over here and we're over here creating just amazing optimistic futures. That's interesting. And it makes me wonder what the real concern should actually be on the part of consumers. Because once again, there are so many levels of this where you're, you're talking to futurists that are telling you, well, why couldn't this be our future? It may not be happening now, but it could be the future. But what it is happening right now that we, we know of for a fact is that there have been scattered incidents and one in particular that made a, you know, a lot of the news uh, about a conversation, a private conversation being erroneously, inadvertently recorded and sent to that person's contact. Correct. Right? And and it was a yeah, mistake. It was like a professional contact and too, not even right, not right. a family just, member. You know, yeah. at the end of the day, we're all sort of horrified by the idea of what we think is our private home conversation being sent to just a person in our contacts or being shared more widely, like sort of with the world. Um, and then, you know, more recently, there have been stories about how there are folks inside these companies at Amazon and Google and Apple, which all have voice assistants, that are actually listening to these supposedly anonymized snippets of information, snippets of voice queries, in order to help train the AIs and make the AIs better. And now some of the companies are starting to come out finally after pressure and say, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to do it differently. Or here's the explicit language around that. So there's that level of concern too. So what do you think actually right now, if 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 you had to put your futurist hat on? What is actually the biggest thing we should be thinking about with Alexa and how it is, you know, in our homes and in our lives? Yeah, I think um, acknowledging like when you buy one of these things, you should (laughs) you should be telling yourself that like there's a good chance there's someone out there who has access to this. Right. I mean, it's listening to this. Um, There's been nothing over the last few years that have convinced me that consumers on on a whole will pull back on their own from something that is convenient because they're worried about privacy. And who knows five years from now? I just think I think at a high level, um, it just seems like there's a trade-off going on, convenience over sort of personal freedom. So unfortunately, we're almost out of time, but I did want to ask you, can you give us a little teaser for what we can expect in future episodes? So there will be an episode all about competition on the Amazon platform, what that looks like. We, we talked to some CEOs of big brands that have pulled off of Amazon. I also traveled to Kansas to one of the towns where Amazon had its first uh, one of its first warehouses um, and then left a few years ago to see what Amazon's impact is. Um, unlike many tech companies, Amazon um, has a physical impact on many, many dozens, over 100 communities across the U.S., so I wanted to explore that. And lastly, 
We have a whole episode about automation and robotics inside of Amazon's warehouses. What is the end game there? We talk to people who think they've solved um, one of the hardest problems in robotics, which is um, having a robot basically being able to um, do the work of picking like a human hand would. Uh, I could keep going, but... Uh, I think you've uh, given us a good a good yeah, teaser yeah, for what's coming great. up on Land of the Giants. Jason, thank you so much for joining Wired's Thanks. Gadget Lab podcast. Thanks so much, It's been great to chat with you. That was a great interview. I can't wait to listen to more episodes of Land of the Giants, and you should all subscribe to hear more about how Amazon is conquering the world. Um, Mike, let's do some recommendations. All right. What's yours? So one of the biggest things that happened in the world of technology this week uh, is that there were two shootings last weekend, uh, two mass shootings, um, one in uh, Dayton, Ohio, and one in El Paso, Texas. And again, the spotlight was thrown on the website 8chan, uh, which is a message board on the internet uh, that has very staunch um, libertarian and free speech rules and allows people to post things and say things that other platforms do not. For this reason, um, the shooters uh, in this in one of these incidents and in past incidents uh, have had their manifestos either by themselves or by other people posted to 8chan. Also videos and photos from the incidents posted to 8chan where they remain as part of the public record. Um, this has caused a lot of people to question whether 8chan should be allowed to continue to operate uh, on servers in the United States. They do have some protections, um, particularly the Communications Decency Act uh, allows them some protections. It's the, the clause that um, uh, does not allow platforms to be held liable for content that people publish on those platforms. And then also there's a free speech argument towards allowing 8chan to continue to operate. Um, however... Uh, 8chan was kicked off of Cloudflare, which is a security company that provides protection against uh, DDoS attacks, among other things. Uh, and they're sort of bopping around the internet now trying to find a place to land. So to make sense of all of this, I have a recommendation uh, because Wired this week on Tuesday published a, um, a fantastic story uh, by Timothy McLaughlin. And the headline is The Weird Dark History of 8chan. Mm. And it looks at where 8chan is at this moment, which is post another shooting where uh, the shooter's manifesto made its way onto 8chan and post the Cloudflare incident and then going all the way back to when it was founded, uh, who it was founded by, the principles upon which it was founded and how it has changed and matured over the years uh, and become the force that it is now. Uh, it profiles uh, several of the people involved. Frederick Brennan, uh, who is the um, mid-20s-ish founder of 8chan, and then um, Ronald Watkins, uh, who is the current administrator, and his dad, Jim Watkins, who owns it. Everybody, all three of these people live in the Philippines. Um, there is now some uh, discussion of whether or not Philippines authorities can get involved because they're using labor in the Philippines to help run the website. So it really kind of brings you up to date it goes all the way back to the beginning of 8chan and brings you all the way up to date to where the site is now. Uh, and it's just a fantastic piece of journalism. It's long. It'll take you half an hour or longer to read it. But I highly recommend it because we're going to be talking about 8chan for the next several months, um, regardless of whether or not there's another shooting where 8chan is um, you know, implicated in the posting of materials related to the shooting. Because... Um, 
the U.S. government is going to get involved, and we're going to have to sort of reevaluate the Communications Decency Act, reevaluate what we consider hate speech on the internet, and a lot is going to change later this year and early next year. So 8chan is sort of the key to learning how that is all going to happen. Mm. Um, so I definitely recommend the story. It's called The Weird Dark History of 8chan by Timothy McLaughlin, and you can find it on Wired.com. So important. And there's been so much reporting this week on 8chan and trying to make sense of the way that extremism thrives on the internet, how certain platforms um, encourage that. Mm-hmm. And I think there's just so much more that we need to talk about and, and understand. And I, yeah, could not agree more with that recommendation. Yeah. And on the additional reporting note, uh, I should also mention that we have an interview with um, Matthew Prince, the CEO of Cloudflare, uh, talking about his decision to remove. Um, uh, 8chan from his uh, list of clients. Right. So pretty important stuff. Yes. And as you mentioned, it's a s- sort of evolving story. It's not mm-hmm. going anywhere anytime soon. Yep. Um, so useful to have that context as we sort of see what happens in the rest of the year. Great. So what is your recommendation? Um, I would like to recommend something for when the world feels a little too overwhelming and you need to <laughs> unplug and watch Netflix, um, which uh, feels increasingly urgent. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a dark comedy on Netflix called Dead to Me. Oh, I'm and so glad you're recommending this. Mike, you actually recommended this show to me, um, and it is fantastic. It is a show that stars Christina Applegate and Linda Cardellini as a pair of women who are going through grief and they become sort of unlikely friends in their grieving process. Um, But then at the end of the first episode, there's this incredible twist. And it just, it's funny, it's dark, it's real. The writing is superb. The acting is exquisite. There's this scene in the very first episode where Christina Applegate's character goes to a grief meeting. She's just lost her husband and she meets Linda Cardellini's character who has also shown up and you see their personalities clash immediately in this way that is so raw and funny and delightful. I skipped the coffee, it's terrible. I made it. Hmm? Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm just kidding. No, just kidding. And just, can I give you a hug? (laughs) No. Yeah, no. (laughs) Um, I I, I really hope there's a second season. There is. There is? I think so, yeah. I think it was was picked up for uh, for a second (gasps) season recently. That's great. Yeah, and also Christine Applegate was nominated for an Emmy, I believe. She was, that's right. It has a lot um, to do with it. it. It's, I think it's one of those really excellent pieces of television where you'll you'll laugh you'll think you'll tear up in mm-hmm. a couple of scenes <laughs> um and you'll also say man i can't wait to see the next episode yeah it's on netflix super bingeable highly recommend uh fun fact about dead to me it was filmed and takes place in and around my hometown orange county yes orange county the hometown of orange county but specifically like laguna beach Dana Point, Laguna Niguel. There is three or four shots in the first episode where I'm like, I- I've been there. I know that place. Like, I used to buy <laughs> Slurpees there. There was, uh, they drive right by a store where I used to work. It's pretty incredible. 
So a uh, big nostalgia trip for me watching it, but also just a fantastic show. So good. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to our show. If you liked this show and you want to give us feedback, there are many ways to do that. You can leave a review uh, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you like to leave reviews of things that you listen to on the Internet. You can also tweet at us at Gadget Lab. Uh, and you can also find us both on Twitter. Ariel, what's your Twitter handle? At Pardesoteric. And I am at Snackfight. And of course, uh, we encourage you to subscribe to the show and listen to us every week and also to subscribe to a Jason Del Rey's podcast, Land of the Giants. And with that, we will be back next week. and cyber criminals have always held this kind of special fascination. Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do. It's a game. Who's the best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's play. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the people trying to stop them. We're not afraid of the attack. We're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind it. Click Here, stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. AI machines, satellite, engine ignition, click here, and liftoff. Click here, every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. From PR.